I cannot hand any of my digital devices over to a friend or a loved one or a colleague without fear of them thinking that I am some kind of monster. That's Joan Donovan. She's not a monster. She's the director of technology at the Harvard Kennedy Shorenstein Center, where she researches some monstrous behavior. We spend a lot of time tracking white supremacist groups online because they are often at the forefront of media manipulation issues, always trying to trick a journalist into covering an issue a certain way. And where do you see these groups posing a threat? Anywhere there's Wi-Fi. They'll hide in depression forums. They'll hide in gaming communities. They'll hide in issues related to immigration. They'll hide in economic forums. Joan isn't just a voyeur. She's a meteorologist. By watching extremist activity online, she can see a storm before it hits. Two years ago, Joan was monitoring chatter on a far-right Facebook group. She saw dark clouds gathering over Charlottesville. In the summer of 2017, I was one of the researchers who was tracking how white supremacists in the U.S. were planning a major rally in Charlottesville that would be their coming out party in a lot of ways. Everything most of us saw on TV, Joan saw weeks before online. In group chats, we would see them talking about what to wear, which included khakis and white shirts. Look no further than Charlottesville. One of the lasting impressions people have are these white kids with polo shirts and khaki pants. And if they had access to a local hardware store that had torches that they should buy as many of them as they could, they wanted to look fierce. They wanted to look powerful. Coming through the streets of Charlottesville carrying torches. And it was reminiscent of those scenes that we saw in Nazi Germany in the 30s. They knew that there was going to be a fight. Fights broke out and police had to be called after alt-right protesters marched through the University of Virginia campus swinging torches. Charlottesville Mayor Mike As I watched this coalition form, I thought to myself, how do we get the word out? How do we tell people what's really happening? Facebook was being used as a meetup app for violent bigots, and the company wasn't doing anything to stop it. It showed very clearly the danger and the power of what it means to allow extremists to organize online. I'd love you to give the social media platforms a grade. If A-plus means the social media platforms are doing everything in their power to restrain extremist rhetoric, and F-minus means they're doing worse than nothing, what grade would you hand out? I think, roundly, many of the social media platforms have failed us all when it comes to knowing what the problem is and refusing to do anything about it until we see large-scale violence. What grade is that? I mean, I think they need to go to the dean's office, right? <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's grounds for expulsion, right? That's not even like you, you get to say you took the class. Humanity has always had a dark side. Social media has given our dark side a bullhorn. 
But how did platforms like Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, founded to bring families together, share silly videos, turn into a megaphone for hatred? And how do we fix it? For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. A few years ago, if you asked me what my favorite website on the internet was, I might have said YouTube. It was, for me, a treasure trove for old music videos, science explainers, speeches and stand-up comedy, interviews, recipes. It was like my favorite library on Earth. I think YouTube contains a library, for sure. And I think that's one of the things that is like the glory of the platform. Alexis Madrigal is a staff writer at The Atlantic. He writes about social media and the tech platforms. You know, you want to fix your hot water heater? Boom, there's a thing for it, right? You need some salamander care tips? Like, boom, there's hundreds of people providing them. There is that aspect. But YouTube has never been content to be just a library. It wants to be a curated, personalized user experience. It wants to watch you, study you, anticipate your desires before you even know your desires. So YouTube recommends videos in its right-hand column. Sometimes these recommendations are uncannily on target. Other times... YouTube is incredibly good at over-recommending. You click on one thing from TED, and it's like, here, watch some more TED. You're going to love this TEDx Berlin talk. Dude, I watched one thing on the power of healing, and now I'm going to get power of healing TEDx videos from all over the world for the rest of my life? And in the last few months, more and more people have begun to comment on how YouTube's recommendations were nudging them in a particular direction. I think I was looking up, like, literally maybe a cake recipe and got something that was like, lizard people, are they in control everywhere or just where you live? (laughs) Um, Actually, I was looking for literal chocolate cake recipes, but I suppose I'll dabble in some light conspiracy theories. This happens to me all the time. Don't believe me? Well, here's an experiment I did recently. I thought, what's the most harmless YouTube search imaginable? How about... Macaroni and cheese. I'm using shells. You could use any kind of small pasta shape or a long noodle as well. So I click on a macaroni and cheese recipe. And the right rail recommended a speech by the conservative professor Jordan Peterson. I stand by my original statement, though, that there's a brand of more radical feminism that insists that our culture is best characterized as an oppressive patriarch. And I think... Okay, I click on that video. Another right column repopulates, showing me videos by the user MAGA Truth Channel, a Trump fan site. Ask any other Marine family or any other Marine. Marines love Trump, first of all. And another by a man at the Heritage Foundation talking about transsexuality. This is based on um, the assertions of a few psychologists. It's not based on any scientific evidence in the research. I click. And suddenly the right rail becomes a waterfall of anti-trans videos, including one where a young man says he found God and realized the sins of the LGBTQ community. So from mac and cheese to anti-trans junk science in three clicks. What is going on here? Why is YouTube so overrun with conspiracy theories and extremism? 
I think I would say that there's a few pieces to it. One is YouTube was kind of built on an outsider outlaw kind of mentality. It had rampant copyright violations in the beginning. So it was already from the very beginning, not really a truly police space. Second, people who started making content for YouTube explicitly set themselves against the kind of media establishment. They were a different kind of content creator and they were different kinds of audiences that were being created. It's this kind of uh, got this rebellious uh, tendency to move away from the mainstream, right? To be anti-mainstream. Third, there's the distorting influence of virality, a problem shared by just about all of social media. Any kind of system that can amplify these like small signals, anything that's built to do that, to make things viral, which these all these platforms depend on that kind of engagement, is going to take niche opinions, political, social, weird things, and occasionally make some tiny subset of them very, very popular. All these platforms have this problem. I wonder if you think there's something inherently viral or shareable about paranoia. I'd go back to like the economics of content production for YouTube. Video is really expensive to make. Reported video is really, really expensive to make. You know, it's not expensive to make a bunch of random opinion stuff. But you need to have opinions that will somehow, sometimes cut through. And that kind of paranoid thinking works like that. Put it together. One, a paranoid style among content creators. Two, these platforms' early reluctance to police their own content. And three, virality's tendency to amplify the weird and extreme. And you've built it. The perfect Petri dish for extremism. And I would just add a fourth thing. All of these platforms were built against the backdrop of the Obama presidency, first black president in American history, which caused this incredible reaction, not just among the extreme far right, but among many, many, many white people. And I think that that is a really crucial thing. I think that they've been deeply intertwined. If you had representatives of YouTube and Facebook and Twitter in your home, sitting in your living room, and you had like an hour of their time to tell them what you thought they could do to make their platforms more ethical, what would you tell them? I have, in some ways, actually had this opportunity. (laughs) So here's the thing. The number one thing that happens when you look into the failings of the various platforms, uh, YouTube and Facebook specifically, is you see this kind of like fractal irresponsibility. No matter where you look, there wasn't enough attention being paid to any particular thing. There were times in the aughts where Facebook literally didn't have a single employee speaking the language of a country that they were deploying in. And so they asked for volunteers to translate the site. So this is like 10 years ago, that's where they're at. They were launching in countries where they like literally would have no idea what people were saying. So that's how little attention they used to pay to these kinds of things. And now they're being asked to like defend elections. They're being asked to like understand deeply the social dynamics of every place in which they are. They need basically a government bureaucracy that they just never built. This might be the most fundamental irony of social media. Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, even YouTube, these platforms have been valuable because, at least in theory, they didn't need a whole bunch of people to run stuff. But what if they do? 
What if being the clearinghouse for every piece of news and gossip in the world requires lots and lots and lots of people to make sure these tools aren't being used to amplify hatred and bigotry? I think they're in the process of doing it. They've hired, you know, tens of thousands of people. But I mean, like, think about how many people are employed by the United States government or just a state government or a local government. Twitter has banned extremists like Alex Jones. Facebook has announced plans to take down white separatist content. YouTube has demonetized channels that spread anti-vaccination conspiracies. And all of them have said they'll use machine learning algorithms to find and take down explicit hate speech. They are beginning to grapple with the responsibilities of governing bodies. But these companies never intended to found a local government or a state government or certainly a transnational bureaucracy governing the rights of expression. They just wanted to build ad companies. So is stemming the global tide of white nationalism and hate really a problem that Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey can fix? No, 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 no. This isn't something that can be solved by Jack Dorsey's weird fasting diets. We'll be right back. I agree with every single thing that Alexis Madrigal just told me. For years, the platforms paid a lot of attention to growth and very little attention to substance. And this has allowed a torrent of hate speech and conspiracy to thrive on social media. But lately, something's been troubling me about the conversation around online extremism. So often, when a terrible thing happens that involves social media, we direct all of our anger at the architects of these platforms. But a platform is more than its algorithms. Its culture is the sum of millions of users and their countless decisions and keystrokes. The social media companies are to blame, yes. But what about us? When people are talking about hate speech or really any forms of antagonism or abuse online, they tend to think about the most extreme articulations of those behaviors, the worst people. And the way that I like to think about that is using a biomass pyramid. Whitney Phillips is a professor of communication at Syracuse University. She studies how hate speech and extremism spread online. In biology, a biomass pyramid looks like a pyramid, and it represents the weight and relative number of a particular organism compared to other organisms within that same ecosystem. So, you know, it's lions, tigers, and bears at the top, and then it's like foxes, and then it's like bunnies, and then it's worms and fungi. (laughs) And so there are fewer lions. They're more dangerous. They're more obvious. But there's actually far less of them in number and weight when you compare them to bunny rabbits or worms. And yes, of course, we have to think about the lions, tigers, and bears, but we really need to not forget about the bunny rabbits. Can you give me a clear example of how this biomass pyramid of hate works in the real world? What is the sort of behavior that you're equating with being a lion? And what is the sort of online behavior that you're equating with being a worm? 
So look at somebody like Alex Jones. Look at somebody like Milo Yiannopoulos. Look at someone like Richard Spencer. When they do things, it tends to get a lot of coverage. The harm that they can cause, especially in someone like Alex Jones's case, is demonstrable. But the reason that Alex Jones and all the rest of these sort of high-profile abusers, manipulators, and bigots, the reason that they have the platform that they do is because other people engage with them. You know, if you are responding to something that Alex Jones has done or said and you really dislike Alex Jones, it may seem like, it may feel like, it may look like that's an appropriate thing to do because a lot of things he does warrants strong condemnation. So we retweet or reshare the hateful content. We call it despicable, disgusting, utterly without merit, scientifically unfounded. We fight the good fight. But by engaging with the story, Twitter's algorithms get triggered. The story floats to the top of people's trending topics list. Journalists start writing about it. The result is that these messages are able to spread way further and way more quickly than they ever would have been able to do on their own. This does create a bit of a catch-22, though, for critics of people like Alex Jones. That on the one hand, if they don't respond to Alex Jones' behavior, then they're being essentially bystanders. They're implicitly condoning, potentially, hateful speech by not calling it out as hateful. But if they do call it out on an attention-driven platform, they're merely adding to the attention metrics of the original apex predator, of the original hate speech. So is there any way out of this catch-22? The issue is generations old. I mean, if you go back and look at how the first wave clan in the 1860s and 70s, the way that they interacted with the news media, the history of, of leaders of the clan kind of boasting to reporters about how many more followers they're going to get because of the story, like that, that history exists. So it's a really difficult position, not just reporters find themselves in, but everyday citizens too. All of the decisions that we make are actually very fraught. It's just that we tend not to talk about that fraughtness because we're focused on how terrible Alex Jones is. You might be thinking, yeah, because Alex Jones is really terrible and I'm not. But Whitney's saying that on social media, where everybody has the power to broadcast, to amplify, to editorialize, we're all media figures now. The 20th century press often failed to properly handle the far right. Can we do better? I am Jane Koston, senior politics reporter at Vox, with a focus on conservatism, the GOP, and the far right. Jane has covered the Charlottesville March, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, the Christchurch New Zealand massacre. At this point, there is not a racial insult or anti-Semitic phrase that you could use that I have not already heard of and had to explain to someone else. And that's terrible. You know, when I go home and I talk to my spouse and they're like, oh, you know, what did you do today? I'm like, I don't really want to tell you because it's basically like I had to wallow in the mire for eight hours and then I get out and I'm just like, how do I explain what I've just done? If I didn't feel some sense of responsibility to do this, I, I would not be. You know, I would very much rather be writing about college football or something like that than I would be, you know, writing about white nationalism. You might think that people who cover the far right, like Jane or Alexis, have a unique job. They're journalists, and most people online are not. 
But on social media platforms, both journalists and ordinary users face the same conundrum. On the one hand, they're interested in pointing to extremism, often to condemn it. On the other hand, the history of the far right shows that these groups take advantage of that attention. So how do you expose without amplifying? It's like knowing there's a fire behind a locked door. To fight the fire, you have to open the door. But doing so exposes the flames to more oxygen, potentially making the fire even worse. We love the weird. We love the macabre. We love the kind of like, oh, this weird cult made people do weird things and then everyone killed themselves. Isn't that interesting? And it is interesting, but it's interesting in the same way that watching someone fall down the stairs is interesting. It doesn't really tell us anything about the human experience. And I think that's kind of the oxygen metaphor. Whereas I think that, you know, reporting on the fire and looking through the windows, not opening the door, but trying to explain how the fire started and how the fire could be stopped and why the fire keeps getting worse and why all these people keep saying that the fire is actually good and the real issue is anti-fire activism. You know, I think that (laughs) that's where I think hopefully I can do something. We've been really poorly served by people who write about the far right without placing it in either a context of what's going on right now or a historical context of how these movements have originated. That's why I think it's so important to add context to everything. Do you think that this is the kind of problem for which Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey will have the solution? If this no. is something where— no. no, 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 no. Why not? No. You know, this isn't something that can be solved by Jack Dorsey's weird fasting diets. But what about banning the bad actors? When you ban people from these platforms, they don't just disappear. They don't, you know, rethink their positions and decide to send no more. They, no, they go somewhere else. If they're kicked off of YouTube or they're kicked off of Facebook, where do they go? They go to other websites. If there is a viewpoint that people want to follow, people will just follow it to whatever platform it's on. At a certain point, it's just playing a really long-running game of whack-a-mole. If it were just YouTube facing the problem of extremism, that would suggest the problem is its algorithm. If it were just Facebook, you could say the problem is Mark Zuckerberg. But it's YouTube and Facebook and Twitter and WhatsApp and 4chan and 8chan. The fact that every social media platform eventually has to face the issue of white nationalism makes it clear that this isn't really about social media at all. In other words, It's the whole damn web. Extremism is a pyramid. There are xenophobic predators at the top, small-time bigots in the middle, and accidental amplifiers at the bottom. Fighting extremism requires a pyramid-shaped strategy. At the top, it requires that social media companies take stronger steps to ban the predators and monitor hate speech, as they've already begun to do. But The Atlantic's Alexis Madrigal says he would go even further. Extreme ideas spread far because these platforms encourage their viral spread. Alexis says to crack down on extremism, these platforms have to become anti-viral. I would invert the way that it has traditionally worked. I would intentionally slow down things that are moving fast, not speed them up. And the effect that I think that would have 
this would be my prediction at least, would be to really kill virality. It would make it very, very difficult for things to go viral because it would essentially be just like, instead of pouring gas in the fire, you're snuffing it out. But that still leaves the rest of us. Whitney Phillips again. You know, so many bad behaviors online are the result of deliberate action, that people want to be harmful, they want to perpetuate their own damaging, violent ideologies, that they are actively trying to do harm. But a lot of harm is caused by folks who don't actually think that what they're doing is harmful. They may think their behavior is totally neutral or even helpful. Even the best intentioned of us, just because I don't mean to cause harm, doesn't mean that I won't accidentally cause harm. And if we could find a way to just bottle that and sell it, oh, that would be perfect. For a century, extremists like the Klan successfully co-opted the press to grow their stature. Today, we're all the press. We all have the power to publish and to amplify, and many of us have, willingly or unwittingly, helped to turn the internet into an accelerant for the extreme, a place where conspiracy and hate often spread further than the sober truth. The social media giants were naive when they thought they could connect the world without connecting hatred. But we're naive, too, if we expect social media to fix our societies. Defanging the lions, tigers, and apex predators of online hate, that's the duty of the tech giants. Saving the rest of the world is the responsibility of the rest of the world. That's a job for the worms. Crazy Genius was produced by Patricia Jacob and Jesse Brenneman, with help from Gabby Deutsch on fact-checking. David Herman is our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Special thanks to Matthew Jensko. Catherine Wells is the executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts. Adrian LaFrance is our executive editor. If you like what you heard, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. I'm Derek Thompson. See you next week. <laughs>